All right, so this morning we are beginning our new series uh, for 13-ish weeks, a quarter is what it works out to, Just Jesus, looking at the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about the Just Jesus idea here in a bit. Um, This morning's message is One Who is Greater. That's the the title, will be in Mark chapter 1. We're going to go through... Most of the verses in Mark, we won't, we won't hit them all on Sunday morning. Of course, you'll read them in your, uh, in your reading plan. But we're going we're gonna to get most of them done on Sunday mornings. Remember to, somebody was nice and put these cards out on your row. So you don't even have to go by the Connection Center to get an invite card for Back to Church Sunday in two weeks. Coming up. It finally rained, so we were actually able to put some signs out in the yard that I've had for a month waiting for rain, because uh, otherwise it wasn't going to happen. You had to drill if you wanted to put anything in your yard last, uh, well, all summer. Uh, so we got those signs out encouraging folks to, to come and, and be a part. With our new uh, series is our new memory verse, Mark 8, 34 and 35. Let's read it together. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Mark 8, 34 and 35. All right. This one, I think, is going to be a little easier to memorize. It, it flows better than... Than for me anyway, than the Jeremiah passage did. I know I get mocked for my desire for passive memory verses to flow better. But uh, so we start, Mark, the, again, the, the series title is Just Jesus. Uh, I, I, I wanted to name it Cliff's Notes Jesus. Um, now, if you're of a certain age, you know what Cliff's Notes are. I don't know if they're used in school anymore. But Cliff's Notes were when you had to read the 300-page book, you went and bought the Cliff Notes that was 75 pages and condensed the story, and you hoped all the questions on the test would come from the, the high points. Smart teachers would not do that. But maybe you could figure out the other ones based on what you read in the Cliff's Notes. Um, that's kind of what Mark is. He's like the Cliff's Notes gospel. You read Matthew and Luke, and they're expansive. And as a matter of fact, 95%, if I remember my numbers correctly, 95% of Mark is found in both Matthew and Luke. Mark was the first gospel written. As a matter of fact, uh, scholars are quite certain that Matthew and Luke used Mark as their their starting point. Matthew almost exclusively used Mark, it looks like, and he expanded some stories, uh, but uh, Luke used Mark and other sources. He says right there at the beginning of his gospel that he used a a number of sources to to get the information for his gospel. Mark basically invented the genre of gospel. A gospel, as we have it, is not history. It's not biography. It's a little of both. Uh, It's not just history. It's not just biography. It's a little of both, but with a different purpose. Mark's not trying to tell us the life of Jesus. 
Because John, if you remember, at the end of his gospel, says if we had written down everything that happened, all the books couldn't hold it, in those, in, just in the three years of ministry. They're not trying to tell everything that happened. They're not trying to tell everything about Jesus' life. They are, Mark in particular, is just talking about Jesus. Just Jesus. He wrote this in early to mid-60s A.D., so some 30-ish years after Jesus uh, was crucified, buried, and, and rose and ascended. He based his gospel um, on Peter's sermons. He uh, uh, very likely did not, well, it's not, sometimes pretty clearly, not chronological, uh, especially when you compare it to uh, other, the other gospels. His purpose wasn't chronological order. He was uh, writing down Peter's sermons. Imagine if you wanted to write down my sermons and, and, and collect my sermons. You, you might decide to, to go in order of books of the Bible. Okay, Michael preached on this book, and these are all his sermons from Genesis, and these are Exodus, and so forth and so on. Well, they wouldn't be in chronological order, because that's not the way we've, we've done books of the Bible as we preach through them. That's what Mark's doing. He's writing down Peter's sermons, and sometimes he's in order, and sometimes he's not, and usually he just uses phrases like immediately and after that. No time frames. Sometimes it could be minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, or maybe they were actually just in a different order altogether, or maybe they were repeated. Who knows? But that, that sort of pinpoint accuracy is not Mark's point. His point is to tell the stories, the events that happened that prove what he says in verse 1, that Jesus is the Son of God. He, he wrote these, like I said, in, in the early 60s AD. This is during uh, Nero's persecution of Christians. And when we talk about persecution, this is, the, this is what you should think of when you think of persecution. Nero, at some point, and it's been fairly well attested, that one of his favorite things to do was throw garden parties. And he would, throw, he would light these garden parties at night with torches, except the torches happened to be crucifixes with Christians hanging on them. Uh, he would burn them as the torches in his parties. That, that's the sort of persecution that they were going through. And this was around the time, either right before or right after, Peter was crucified. Tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down. We don't have any real hard facts to that, but we do know he was martyred. And that's when he writes. And Mark writes these stories, these gospel stories, to a Latin church, an Italian church. He was very likely in Rome. We're fairly certain he was in Rome, writing to the Christians in Rome because he, he explains Hebrew words, but he uses a lot of Latin words and doesn't bother translating them. So clearly he's talking to people who knew Latin but didn't know Hebrew. His, his themes throughout, his, his reason for writing, it appears, is this idea of triumph, over persecution, which the church needed at this time. They've had the stories that the church there in Rome had heard all the sermons of Peter. Uh, at this point, they wouldn't yet have the letters of Paul, the letter of Paul written to the church in Rome. Peter's been the one there preaching. And uh, 
they, this persecution starts, they know the stories, but Peter's dead. And it's been 30 years. And if you were 40 or 50 when Jesus was crucified, well, now you're 70 or 80 if you've lived that long. And even if you were young, like we think John was, you're, you're still, man, folks are, folks are dying off. We need to write this stuff down. Mark does. Because they need to hear, they need to have written down for them. They need to have reminders of who Jesus is. Uh, the, the theme, since he's writing because of persecution and to uh, encourage during persecution, he's letting them know that the one greater than Caesar, the, the one who's persecuting us right now, Mark would say, the, the one we're having to deal with right now, there was one that was greater, a true son of God who knew betrayal, and persecution. He knew the cross. He knew the cross that Nero's putting Christians on right now and lighting on fire as torches. Jesus knew it first. So he's writing for people who already knew the sermons, so he leaves out a lot of details that we would think, well, Mark, why didn't you say that? Well, that's where Matthew and Luke came in. Mark, why didn't you say that? So they write in those details that they thought were necessary. Mark didn't think they were necessary as he was guided by the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to take Mark's gospel as it's written. We're going to do very little gospel comparison. Uh, we're not going to worry about what Matthew and Luke said about this instance and this instance and this instance. We're not going to bring those in because we're looking at Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel had a very particular purpose. Mark's gospel, obviously, according to the Holy Spirit, wasn't enough. There had to be more. But for that time, for those people, the church in Rome, Mark's gospel was enough. This is what God told Mark to write, so this is what we're going to look at. Which means we're going to be asking a lot of questions without answers. Mark seems to be intentionally saying things like he will say in, um, like John the Baptist will say, that one who is coming after me, uh, will, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Awesome. And you read the Gospel of Mark, and that never happens. Mark never says, and here's where Jesus did what John the Baptist said. Mm -mm. He left it open-ended. He knew there was more after his Gospel. Now, Luke writes Acts and shows us a lot of that, but that wasn't Mark's purpose. So, Mark is, is a very interesting, very brief gospel. And, and we see that because of where he comes in. No history. We learn Jesus is from Nazareth, period. That's the extent of Jesus's history that we get in Mark. Well, let's start to get into it. Our big idea this morning is, is really almost the big idea for the entire series, not just this sermon this morning. Look for, find, and follow the one who is greater. That's the title of the sermon, One Who is Greater, and that's what Mark is pointing at in these first 13 verses. These, are, these 13 verses are his introduction to the entire gospel. 
Uh, that's why we, you took it as a chunk this morning in your connect group, and it's why we're taking it as a chunk this morning. This is the prep for everything else he's going to say. Uh, read along with me. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, One who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were serving him. Mark's writing professor would have some issues with him. Not good transitions. If, if we were looking at watching a movie, we'd get whiplash because we just, oh, we're those, oh, goodness, that's John the Baptist. Oh, wait a minute, now we're Jesus. It's, John just appears. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us that John is the one crying out in the wilderness. It just says, and there will, and it will be one. And, and, and the beginning, is, it's written in Isaiah, there'll be somebody. John was out in the wilderness, and he was, well, is John the one? Well, yeah, but Mark thinks, oh, Peter's told y'all that, right? You, you've heard the sermons. I'm just reminding you what you already know. Isaiah said somebody's coming. John was in the wilderness. Jesus showed up. He got baptized. He went out in the wilderness and was tempted. The end of the introduction. There is more here, though. There, there's this interesting motif that uh, we're, we're actually not getting into this morning, um, but, but it's good just to kind of think about this idea of wilderness. Everything is wilderness. Isaiah, one crying in the wilderness. John was in the wilderness. Jesus went out to meet him in the wilderness. Then he was driven out into the wilderness. This, this idea of wilderness is a great discussion to have, something to think about. Israel was in the wilderness. The wilderness was where people go uh, to, uh, to hear from the Lord, to, to get on the path they need to be on next. And sometimes it's correction, sometimes it's just getting away. And that's something to just to keep in mind, uh, but that's not our focus. Our focus this morning is one who is greater. That's the theme, and that's what we see. We see this progression of, of greatness. Actually, it starts, I think, probably at the highest point of greatness. Then we drop down and we build back up to that point in verse 13, 12, verses 12 and 13, and then Mark goes on with his gospel and says, this one who is greater, let me tell you about all the things that proved who he was. Well, 
In chapter 1, we have the greater named. Mark doesn't pull any punches. Again, remember, he is, he is brief, he's to the point, here it is, this is the way it was, let me just get this out, and he says at the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, that's, that's it. Now, by this time, and by this time I mean 60s AD, and actually probably not too long after the 30s, Jesus Christ, Christ pretty much became his last name. They stopped calling him Jesus the Christ. Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. They stopped calling him Jesus the Christ or Yeshua the Messiah. They called him Jesus Christ, Yeshua Messiah. They, they gave him the last name of Christ, which is fitting because there's not going to be another one. They had been looking for the one, and now the one is here. So that's not just what he is, that is who he is. Jesus, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. First thing, Mark is announcing the greatness of God. Uh, the, rather, the greatness of Jesus, the Son of God. He, is, he has set us up at the pinnacle already. The Son of God. He is, he is God. He is, at the very least, and he's not a product of God, but he is the family. It, it, he's the same thing. He is part of. Mark's not going to explain the Trinity to us. You know, just don't expect that. We're going to see it here in a few verses. He's going to present it, but he's not going to explain it. The title, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, this is him. It's this guy. This guy that I'm going to now talk about and show you how and why, in what ways, he is the Son of God for the next 16 chapters. Why he is greater than anything else. Now, Caesar at this time was called a son of the gods. He was considered deity. Well, Mark is putting him in his place right at the beginning. Yes, Nero is persecuting you. Yes, Nero thinks he has all this power. Yes, Nero thinks he's in charge. No, no, no. No matter what title they give him, no matter what they say about him, no matter what he says about himself, there's one son of God. And Nero ain't it. He is fake. Jesus is the real son of God. Now, as we read the gospel, we're going to find that the characters in the gospel, from the disciples all the way out to everybody else, struggle with this designation of Jesus as the Son of God. And, and Mark is intentionally showing the people who already know. The readers know this. The readers aren't struggling with the idea of Jesus as the Son of God. Okay, okay? keep that in mind. But he is showing them, look, this was the progression that, that Peter has told you about. Look, we didn't get it. I mean, I, we said some good things, and we saw some amazing things, and, and, and we, 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 we were right there, and still we didn't get it until Pentecost. Then we finally got it. We struggled. Peter, being honest and open, and Mark writing that down under the power of the Holy Spirit. The beginning of the gospel of not me, not you, not the church, not Israel, 
just Jesus. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the purpose that we're gonna, he's going to lead up to in showing the one who is greater, who is to come, but hey, well, he has come, is the greatness of the cross. The greatest sacrifice. The greater sacrifice. We're going to see that as we move through Mark. And that's what he's prepping us for. So the greater named, now the greater announced. We get the, the passage from uh, Isaiah and Malachi. This is actually a blend of two different uh, prophets. Mark just gives credit to Isaiah. The, the plan based on Isaiah and Malachi was to send somebody to announce the Lord. Guess who's coming? I'm here to tell you who it is. Mark, as I said, it doesn't say, and John the Baptist was the one who was set apart. He just, it's assumed. One's coming, and now I introduce this character in my, my gospel, because y'all know it's John. This one that's coming is preparing the way for, verse 3, the Lord. Prepare the way for the Lord. Now Mark uses this phrase from Isaiah. Isaiah was using that phrase to refer to Yahweh, to God, the, the first person of the Trinity. Mark then takes that phrase and says, oh no, yeah, yeah, that's, that was right for Isaiah. He was absolutely correct that what he didn't understand was that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the Lord. Now we've got our uh, Jesus is God, God is Jesus. We've got two-thirds of the Trinity talked about here. And that's what he's letting them know. It, he, Mark does not use the title Lord for Jesus frequently at all. I think three times, if I remember correctly, is, is all he uses the word Lord. So the fact that he uses it here is, is special. Prepare ye the way, prepare the way for the Lord. One's coming to say, prepare the way for the Lord. John's here. And then right after him, Jesus shows up. It is clear that Lord, that the Lord he is talking about, though it's the Yahweh that Isaiah is talking about, the Lord he is talking about is Jesus. Now, using the term Lord for Jesus was much more common after the resurrection. Why? Because they got it. Oh, now they called him Lord. A lot of people called him Lord, but Lord was also Sir. Lords and ladies, house of lords. It ain't the house of Jesus's over in England, the house of lords. It's the house of uh, fancy people and people with status. And that's how they use the phrase. Lord was as simple as Sir, but as big as Yahweh, depending on context. After the resurrection, they began to look at Jesus and go, wait a minute, he ain't just Sir. He's God. And they use this uh, phrase more often. So here at the beginning of the gospel, he's making a clear claim to who is ultimately coming. Isaiah talked about the Lord. Wait three verses, and we're going to see him. Now, what we also see is John the Baptist isn't the Lord. Somebody's coming who's going to announce the way, prepare the way for the Lord. And John is going to say, I am waiting on somebody just like you. I am not it. One, two, three. Not it. That's what John was. Are you the Messiah? One, two, three. Not it. Not me. Uh-uh. No. 
No, I'm not the one. John was important. Yes. John was right. Yes. And he knew he was right. But he wasn't the one. He wasn't the one that they were waiting on. Interestingly, this idea of wilderness that that we see throughout these 13 verses shows us that discipleship, if you wanted to be a disciple of John, where'd you have to go? The wilderness. Jesus, to prepare himself, went to the wilderness. Discipleship requires withdrawal from the world and sacrifice. That's what discipleship is. Withdrawal from the world and sacrifice. That's not the theme of this passage, but it is something we see as we read it. So John wasn't the one, but he pointed to the one. That was his job. That's why he came along. That was his whole reason for existence. It's why he set up his, uh, his discipleship group to point to the one that was coming. I don't know how he knew. I mean, I, I, it, it's, Mark doesn't tell us. None of the other Gospels really tell us. But he knew his job was to point to Jesus. He knew enough about who was coming to say, look, I am not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. What I read this week said that even the lowest slaves, lowest Hebrew slaves, didn't have to take the shoes off of, of, of their masters. Feet were nasty. A lot of people don't like feet anyway. I, mean, I get it. Mine stink even when they're not outside on, on, on bare ground. These folks wore sandals. It was dirty. It was nasty. It was, and, and, and you even, okay, yeah, even the slaves don't have to take the shoes off. I do my own. John says, it's not that, that, that I, I shouldn't have to. It's that I am not worthy to do the most menial task that nobody else is required to do. I'm not worthy of that for this one who's coming. It was his job to announce the Messiah, the Savior, the repentance of sins. That's our job, too. We're not it. One, two, three, not it, not us. First Baptist Church, one, two, three, not it. The church, one, two, three, not it. The church doesn't save anybody. Jesus saves. The church exists to announce the one that saves, just like John the Baptist See, I'm sending my messengers, First Baptist Church of Sulphur, ahead of you. Well, Jesus has already come. But we are still sent as messengers out to prepare the way for the Lord, to tell of the one whom we are not worthy of, who we we couldn't even untie his sandals, just like John the Baptist. The greater is announced. And then Mark changes the channels or flips the the, the scene or whatever and we see the greater emerged in verse 9. He has uh, told us who it is. He's named him. John announces him. And then Jesus just shows up. In those days. John probably preaches this message a bunch of times. So 
Jesus, in the midst of John spending however weeks, months, whatever, out in the wilderness, baptizing, calling to repentance, but primarily announcing that this one who is coming, Jesus, in the midst of all that, at some point in those days, shows up. He comes from Nazareth. He leaves his hometown. Nazareth is so not important, it's never mentioned in the Old Testament, rabbis, the, the, the teachings, just Nazareth does not show up. I, it is, I don't want to pick on any towns around here, so I'll just let you in your head think of the smallest little community, Booger Branch, right, uh, right John Watson? You're, he's somewhere. Little community, little, no, you know, nothing comes out of there, whatever, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That is the only designation Mark gives us of Jesus. Not son of Joseph, not son of Mary. Jesus of Nazareth. And he just shows up. He, uh, Nazareth in Galilee, which is actually uh, in the Decapolis area. It was sort of a, 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 um, a Hellenized area of Israel at the time. So he came, even though it's a small backwater town, it's, it's sort of a mixed town. It's a, it's a mixed area. It's not pure Judaism. Uh, it's an interesting spot for the Messiah. Again, could anything good come out of there? Jesus shows up and was baptized in the Jordan by John. One sentence. Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee showed up and was baptized in the Jordan by John. Why was he baptized? Mark doesn't tell us. Jesus had no sins to be forgiven for. So he didn't repent and be baptized. All I know is that when we're baptized, we are both being obedient to and following our Savior into we're being obedient to the Savior who said, be baptized, and we're following him and doing the same thing he did. We are identifying with him. We know baptism is a symbol of death. This was a precursor, at the very least, of his death, burial, and resurrection. It may have been as simple as that, but Mark doesn't bother telling us any of that. He just showed up. And, and this, this idea of little bitty town, and, and I think this is what Mark's getting at too. The Jordan was vitally important throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. But the Jordan is kind of a nothing river. It, from, as the crow flies, it's 105 miles long. From the beginning, from its source to where it ends in the Dead Sea, straight line it's 105 miles with all the curves in it it's just a little over 200 miles it's not a major river and then only in the flood season is it ever deeper than like 10 feet anywhere it, it's it's not a big deal jesus from this little town in nazareth the little town of nazareth in galilee north north israel off to the side a little bit his coming to this, well, this weird guy out in the wilderness who, who wears camel hair and eats, uh, eats locusts, cicadas, and wild honey, who's, who's telling people to be baptized, which isn't really something they do that often. And Jesus is going to him and doing it. 
and he's, he's baptized in this basically nothing river. Important to us, but not to the world. It's not, you don't ship things on it. It's not, it's just a little bit of fresh water. There's nothing going on here. There's nothing that the world would see here. There's nothing that would attract you to this. Except maybe the spectacle of this mountain man out there baptizing people. Yeah, and go see. No, that's not that exciting. Don't get lost in the simplicity. Because what we have here is one who is greater emerging coming out of the shadows of Nazareth, coming out of anonymity here in this little bitty town. Luke will tell us that there have been inklings of who he was, but it wasn't widespread, it wasn't well known. This traveling teacher, who turns out to be a traveling teacher, just shows up. But the greater is emerging. He is showing himself. We're learning who he is. Verses 10 and 11, the greater marked. We learn a little bit more about him now at his baptism. We learn why, not not why he's baptized, but we get a picture, a glimmer of who he is when he's baptized. Mark says that, so he's gone in, he was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, as soon as he was pulled out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. To mark him, the rest of the Trinity shows up. Now, in, in this, in Mark's gospel, it says he saw. Jesus saw. Um, he saw the heavens being torn open. Doesn't mean nobody else saw it, but Mark in, intentionally tells us Jesus saw it happen. Why does he tell us that? I don't know, but he does. But what he does tell us is the rest of the Trinity shows up. The Son of God comes out of the water. The Spirit of God descends on him. And the uh, Holy God, the, the, the first person of the Trinity, Father God says, This is my Son. Isaiah 64.1 says, If only you would tear the heavens open and come down. He did. The heavens tore open. And Jesus, who was already here and and knew who he was, was already God, was still the second person of the Trinity, but now for those who are there to see it. The heavens tore open. God came down. And we beheld his glory. The glory as the only begotten Son. Jesus was marked. He didn't become the second person of the Trinity here. He wasn't baptized and then now he's divine. He was always 100% human and 100% divine. This is the marking of him to us. 
Mark is telling the people he's writing to. You heard Peter talk about this. You heard the sermons. I'm just reminding you. When he went down into the water, as he came up, we see all three of the Trinity right there. The Father and the Spirit is almost like a group photo. Right before Jesus goes off, in this case to the wilderness, but begins his three years of ministry, it's, it's, the, it's when you take your kid to college, if you've done it, or if you're going to do it. You, or even the first day of school. But, but college, is, it's a little different, trust me. It's different. And you go and, and you drop them off, and, and maybe you get a picture, all of you standing together, before you send them off. That's, that's kind of what we have here. This snapshot of the Trinity before Jesus begins his ministry for three years. It's not a separation. You know, they don't divide and suddenly Jesus is not part of the Trinity anymore. None of that's going on. But we, we get that snapshot. We get to put on our refrigerator the day that Jesus began his ministry. If we wonder who is greater, well, that's it right there. When, when God spoke and the Holy Spirit came down and we see the Trinity right there, the one who is greater was marked. And then Mark changes the channels on us again. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. And we see the greater proven in verses 12 and 13. As I said earlier, the, the wilderness is always been a place of testing, a place of preparation, sometimes a place of rest in the case of Elijah, but also testing, what are you doing here, Elijah? John went to the wilderness to teach, to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. Mark doesn't explain why he went to the, the wilderness for testing. None of the Gospels actually explain why. Mark doesn't even bother explaining the how. We have other places where the devil asks questions and that sort of thing, and Jesus responds. Mark, nope, he just went to the, the uh, wilderness as the Spirit drove him. But the Spirit went with him. I mean, they're, they're like connected right? They are the same, so he couldn't go out with the Spirit, but it, go without the Spirit. But he drove him. He, the Spirit, drove him, Jesus, into the wilderness. And Mark doesn't say specifically that he prevailed over the temptation. Do you notice that? Other Gospels will tell us, and he answered with Scripture, and then it was over, and and Mark just says, just, you know, again, Cliff's notes. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals. And the angels were serving him. Makes clear this is a perilous time. These weren't, some scholars would say that wild animals here means it's like a, a, a revelation view of wild animals. When the lion lays down with the lamb. And, but that's not the tone here. The tone is, he was, he was out in an awful place, being treated awfully for 40 days and 40 nights. 
and we don't know what happens. Now, has Peter preached it to the, the, the churches there? Very possibly. Very likely, actually. But Mark just says he was there. He was tempted. He was with the wild animals, and angels were serving him. That's our hint. Now, verse 14 is the obvious, well, he was okay. He made it. But the end of verse 13, angels serving, is Mark's way of saying, but it was all okay. And we should have known it was all okay. Of course, the readers knew it. The rest of the gospel is going to show it. Angel serving shows how he is the one who is greater. But Mark doesn't have to say that he overcame it because he said in verse 1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's almost a duh. Like, well, yeah, he made it. Who do you think I'm talking about here? I'm talking about Jesus. Uh, last week, I came across some, some clips of Reggie White. He was a, a defensive tackle. Um, he was a pastor. Uh, even uh, while he was playing football, he played for the Green Bay Packers and I think the Jets. And then when he retired, he was a pastor for a while and died extremely young. I mean, I mean like 40s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, extremely young. Um, yeah, real young. He was called the Minister of Defense because he was just phenomenal. He, was, he would tear up offensive linemen, and, and there were some just, just great clips. And, and he could get through anybody. There was one particular clip he went up against who, who was known as the strongest football player ever, just, just muscle and what he, he could lift. And Reggie White had a, a move that he could do on anybody. It was his right arm. He pulled it up. And it was a technique thing. He was strong. He was big, but it was technique. And he got the guy out of the way, and he sacks the quarterback. When Reggie White was on the field... You knew the outcome because he was one who was greater. He was greater at least than anybody else on the field. You, you, you watch the clips and you go, well, of course. That's kind of what I thought of as I read this. Mark is telling us, I already told you who he was. It shouldn't be a shock that Reggie White, when you're watching clips of football, got through the offensive line and sacked the quarterback. We already knew who he was. Mark is saying, it shouldn't surprise you that Jesus overcame this temptation and began his ministry in verse 14, because I already told you who he was. I already told you he was the greatest. And then I just kind of backed up and said, well, he's greater than John the Baptist. And he was marked by his greatness uh, by the Holy Spirit. He, he was announced, his, his greatness was announced, and then he was, uh, he was marked. And then he, he uh, goes out and, and, and he's in the wilderness and he's proven. It's proven how great he is. I told you, but see, I, I, I thought this morning, if you bake bread or anything, years ago when I worked at Domino's, we had to proof the dough for the, uh, the pizza crusts. That dough had to be proven 
and you let it sit. You just didn't mess with it. It, it just spent some time alone till it proofed and it was ready. The, the wilderness proved Jesus. It proved that, that Mark was right to announce him, to name him as the greatest. It was proof that Isaiah and John the Baptist were right to announce him as the greatest. It was proof that when he finally emerged, he was the greatest. It was proof that God and the Holy Spirit, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit were right to mark him as the greatest because when he came out of that wilderness, he had defeated temptation. He had defeated the devil. The wild animals didn't matter. The angels were ministering to him because he had proven he was greater. What was our big idea? It's up at the top of my notes. Look for, find, and follow the one who is greater. He's the one that is greater than your greatest concern or your greatest hero. In these days, Nero was their greatest concern. But they may have had some political leader that was a great hero to them also. If we go back to the crucifixion, we see Barabbas. An odd choice, but it was their choice. He's the one that's greater than your, your greatest concern or your greatest hero. No matter whether you fear a man or trust a man, Jesus is greater. He's the one who is greater than your greatest ability. John the Baptist, he had a following. He was a disciple maker, a disciple maker of disciples of John. But he said, that's not my goal. That's not my purpose. I'm not here to make disciples of John. As a matter of fact, I'm going to start this little group, this little church, and I hope I lose every member to the one that I'm here to announce. He's the one that's greater than your greatest ability, no matter how good you think you are. No matter how much you think Jesus ought to be happy with where you are, he's greater than how good you think you are, how good you think you can be. He's the one that's greater than your greatest plan or belief. Why is Jesus being baptized? We don't know. That doesn't make sense that he would be baptized. Be baptized for repentance. He doesn't need to repent. I believe this, but well, it doesn't matter what your belief. But it, it should go like this, not like that. It doesn't matter. No matter how you, things ought, you think things ought to go or be, Jesus is greater than your plan. He's the one that's greater than your greatest symbol or ideal. I have ideas of, of, of what's great, and, and, and this particular way isn't the way I would go. When God announced and the Holy Spirit came down, suddenly it doesn't matter what you think about Jesus' way or his words or his teaching. No matter what gods or idols you exalt in your life, Jesus is the one that's greater than any of those things. 
He's the one that is greater than your temptation and sin. No matter what you've done, you can find forgiveness in Jesus. No matter what Satan throws at you, you can find protection. You can find an out in him. He has defeated that sin in the wilderness because he came out on the other side. He already told us he was the greatest, and I just proved it to you. But he also defeated that sin eternally on the cross. We, we're always looking for the next best thing, the next greatest, whatever it is. You know, the, 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 the Coke that tastes just like the real thing with this newest and greatest fake sweetener. And it always fails. Just throwing that out there. We're always looking for the next, the, the next purchase that will finally make us feel good. The, the next this that will cover up this hole. The next that that will fill this longing. We're always looking for the next greatest, the next best. And Mark says, I've got the one that is greater. We're always looking for the, the way to feel better about what we've done wrong or to fix what we've done wrong or to, to, to find the, the method that will get, well, if I can just change my thinking, if I can just change my habits, if I can just change my environment, if I can just change my friends, I, if I do all these things, I, I will fix my life. And Mark says, I've got the one that is greater than all of your fixes. I'm telling you, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He's the one who is greater. Greater than our sin. Romans 6.23 The wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hey, there's that, that Lord title after the crucifixion, right? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's got all of that. Paul would say, I certainly didn't get it. I mean, I was there when Stephen was stoned. I, I had no clue, but I got it now. What's your greatest burden? What's your greatest sin? What is your greatest hope? Jesus is greater than all of them. So come to him this morning. Take a next step. Take up your cross. Leave your life. Follow him. Look for, find, and follow the one who is greater. Be baptized in, in obedience and in um, completely lost the word. Imitation of Jesus. Do what he did because he said do it. Do what he did because he did do it. Submit to God. Conform your life to him. Join our church. Share your decision with us. Let us know 
how today you have turned from the lesser doesn't matter how great it is, it's still the lesser, and turn to the greater. So we can pray with you, pray for you about your decision. Share it on a connection card. You can come forward when we pray here in a few minutes or when we sing here in a few minutes and pray with us. I'll be over here on the right. Chelsea will be to my left. Uh, two of our deacons, Lee and Kirk, will be in the right. Justin, our youth minister, will be in the back. I, I said right. I meant in the back for both, all three of them. You're all watching online, send us a message or an email. Everything in life is less than Jesus. Everything. Come to the one who is greater. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have shown us the greater, you have provided the greater. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you lived the greater life, you died the greater death, you made the greater sacrifice to prepare a greater eternity for us. For whom, no matter how good we think things might be or have been or will be, they will all pale when we see you. So, Lord, may we follow the one who is greater and see you do exactly what you said. Give us life abundant, well, a greater life than we could ever imagine. Carrying a cross daily, and you will provide an abundant, greater life. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for that promise. And I pray this morning that somebody commits their life to Jesus. They will believe in Jesus for salvation today and experience the one who is greater than anything else they could possibly imagine. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, as we stand and sing, you come as you feel led. The front's open for prayer if that's what you'd like.